people listening to you guys on Pound the Table. Welcome back to Pounding the Table. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 57 of Pounding the Table, a podcast where we focus on the stock market, the art of options trading, and slowly kind of tapping our way into Web3 and crypto. This week, we got a special guest, Ralph DiFiori, with over 30 years in the financial markets, also has been involved in over 600 IPOs and just an incredible wealth of knowledge to share with everyone today. As always, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should never be construed as financial advice. Now, before we get started, I want to just give a quick shout out to our sponsors over at StockTwits, the best place in the world to get a pulse of the market. See what people are saying, your favorite tickers every single day and each week. Our friends over at StockTwix send us over the trending tickers of the week. Let's jump over to the crypto world where we got Solana looking extremely bullish. They had quite the week going from around 100. They hit 140 now. I think they're hovering around like 136 or so. Bitcoin and Ethereum both doing their thing. Bitcoin's continuing to chug. It looks like it's about 46, 470 at the time of this recording. Ethereum's now up over 25% this month. So Coming back over to the stock world, we got Apple with an 11-day winning streak finally coming to an end. People are talking about a new all-time high soon, so definitely keep an eye out for Apple. GME is doing their thing, going pretty crazy here over the past month, around 40% up. Tesla, obviously, we talked about them the past few weeks, but they're up 30% over the past 30 days themselves. AMD showing some weakness, though. AMD dropped around almost 8%, 7.5% in the day from a high of 125 last week to 108 today. Robinhood finally got a little bit of a bid. On March 29th, they rocketed from like 12.50 up to around 16 before now settling back around the 13.50 range. FUBU, along with all the other betting, all those stocks are kind of down, but FUBU's getting beat up over 71% over the past six months. And so that was one of the group, you know, that I never really loved, but I can't take so much credit. That whole industry is unfortunately not doing so well themselves. But let's quickly get over to the interview. We do have a number of spaces coming up this week. So if you do not follow us already, definitely follow us on Twitter. You'll hear a lot of great speakers from throughout FinTwit. We got our buddy Rahul joining us again on the regular. So excited about that. But without further ado, let's kick this over to our guest. I think you guys will really enjoy him. As I mentioned, just tons and tons of knowledge. So we're going to teleport over to Ralph DeFiore since we had pre-recorded this earlier in the week. We are here with Ralph DeFiore, who's a founding member of Chatsworth Securities. Very excited to talk to him today. He's got a wealth of knowledge, the founding partner of an international asset manager and investment banker. Many, many years in the space across many different verticals. So we're going to tap into his knowledge today. So very excited to have you on the show. Thanks, Avi. Uh, good to be here. Uh, Anthony, good to uh, see you. And um, excited to talk about what I can about the markets. You have a ton of experience. You've been working with around 600 different IPOs. would love to hear just kind of your experience from a high level, like how you got into the financial world and, and the different roles that you've touched on and what you're doing here at, at Chatsworth today. Sure. I started out in the uh, pension fund industry. I was an analyst at NCR 
Corporation. I was their first analyst dedicated to the pension fund. And I stayed there a couple of years. And then I went on to Owens, Illinois, where that's in Toledo, Ohio. They make glass bottles, wonderful people. And uh, I was there five years, did a lot of great things with them and got hired away by McDonnell Douglas in St. Louis. And they had $5 billion under assets at that time and did some great things for them as well. And then I was asked to join an asset management firm and jump to the sell uh, side. And it's interesting. I uh, was with a couple of different asset managers. And I was with one firm that had... Uh, Five billion under management, and eighteen months after I joined, they only had three hundred million left. And what happened was the Sultan of Brunei pulled his four point seven billion dollar account, and they couldn't afford me anymore. So they said, "Go see Joel Matkovsky. He's starting a uh, investment bank for us in New York. Maybe he wants to hire you." And that's how I got into investment banking <laughs> after being in uh, uh, the pension fund industry and in uh, sales of investment products. And I, I met Joel. Uh, Joel uh, is from Brooklyn. So am I. And we got along fantastically. And I said to him, um, I know a lot of people in the asset management industry. You know how to do deals. Let's go after that. Uh, sector. And we wound up doing a string of uh, transactions, the largest of which was uh, representing Credit Suisse in uh, what at the time was a very large transaction, a $100 million plus transaction in the asset management industry. And I said to Joel all the time, let's go out on our own. We did that in late 92. We were advisors to the asset management industry. And in 96, we started the broker-dealer. And uh, if uh, your audience may recall, uh, 97, 98, 99 were just incredible years for IPOs. Mm -hmm. So in our first year, full year of operation, 97, we were in almost 100 IPOs and secondaries. <laughs> Tony and wasn't I even thought, born yet, by the way. I, <laughs> yeah. I was born in 97, so right around the same time. <laughs> Were you buying IPOs? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, I thought, wow, this this easy business. And then 2000 hit. and But uh, it seemed like every couple of years, we would come across a person or uh, a sector that we wanted to uh, go after. And uh, we went after the placement business that is raising capital for funds, strictly institutional. And by the way, that's our business is strictly institutional clients. And the people we call on are strictly institutional in scope and in capital. We're dealing with parties that have hundreds of millions, but typically billions of dollars. So now we're at the point where we have 25 registered reps and we raise capital for funds, we raise capital for companies, and we raise capital for real estate projects. And that's our business. We're about to open an office in Paris. So it's our uh, first step into the international markets. 
and Marcus McGarian. Yeah. He's a legend. The legend. That's right. But uh, we've done a lot of cross-border transactions, notably Italy. We're onboarding one now. We've done many, many transactions in South uh, America. So that's uh, the overall business scope of Chesswood Securities. We were talking right before the show about the difference between all that IPO madness going on back in the early 2000s, late 90s. So I know a lot of people recently have been comparing this recent growth, you know, crash is a correction to 2001. And one key difference that I keep saying is like the difference in those actual underlying companies behind the stocks. And so I'd love to to hear some differences between how IPOs were back then and now, and, and I guess how people were valuing it in such a crazy time when, you know, the internet's new, it's like discovering fire. How do you even evaluate that? <laughs> I, I remember somebody telling me back then, might've been, you know, mid 2000 after the crash, uh, before the crash, investors, and I'm talking about serious investors, in institutional investors, only read the concept of the company and what the company was about. And after the crash, they started from the back of the document and read about the balance sheet and profits. Uh, and that sums up sounds the right. difference <laughs> between then and now. You know, yeah. and, and what's happened to, you see it with SPACs, mm-hmm. uh, private companies, because of the other famous crash, the 2008 crash, all throughout this whole period, the compliance burden on both uh, financial institutions and companies has gone up dramatically. And so a lot of companies don't want to go public. And so they stay private. And this has resulted in private trading of their shares. There are many, many trading platforms where you could trade uh, the shares of a private company. They can also finance themselves with secondaries. They don't have to go to the public markets. And a, a lot of this is the burden of going public. A, it's expensive. But also the, the compliance is uh, quite heavy and expensive. And part of the reason for the SPAC is they can go public because what is the disclosure in a SPAC? There, there isn't any. They, they don't mm-hmm. have operations. They don't have profits. They don't have losses. They just have cash. You know, that, <laughs> so it's easy to go public that way. And then they go out and do an acquisition. So that, that's part of this compliance burden and expense burden resulting from the prior crashes. What's the value of going traditional route versus SPAC is less compliance? Like, do they, they still have to do something, I'd imagine, right? Oh, yeah. But uh, I mean, just think of a, a company wanting to go public. It has to hire a law firm to make sure it adequately describes its operations and it's got to have uh, good results, right? I mean, a SPAC can go out and buy a company that's back on its heels, but that may have a rosy future and buy it inexpensively. But Mm -hmm. to get a company like that to go public is very difficult. There's no sizzle in it, you know, Mm -hmm. so who's going to buy it? 
you know, buy me, I'm cheap. It, it's not going to work. So what, what else do you have? You, you have the underwriter, all of these entities that are involved in the IPO process, they're all trying to prevent litigation, litigation by the company, litigation by the investors. So they're all very, very careful about what goes into prospectus. And um, uh, you don't see many in proportion of the number of IPOs, you don't see many uh, of these uh, people involved in the process being sued because that's, they're so careful, you know, but that caution raises the cost of going public. Worked uh, a lot of these high growth companies, get a lot of money from VCs, those VCs start knocking, they want their money. And so how, how do you, have you seen that play out, I guess, with the VCs and balancing act where you said some companies are choosing to take these secondaries? Like, how have you seen this play out and with these founders fighting off the VCs of the direction of the company? What I've seen is VCs now more than ever, I mean, they're in a competitive race with other VCs. Um, and the internet is a big magnet for capital, okay? Because uh, you can invest in an internet company and maybe in three, four, five years, it's up 30 times. You know, it's a unicorn, right? If you invest in a manufacturing company, it may take 10 or 20 years to be up that much or maybe never, you know, are you going to have it catch up to the internet investment? So a lot of money has been poured into internet software, and it's very difficult now to find capital. And this is a reflection of our national policy as well. And what I mean by that is allowing all our manufacturing to drift off to China, right? And what you see now is we, it's very hard to find money for industrial related companies, you know, especially development stage, venture capital type companies. The people that funded those 20, 30 years ago, they're out of business or they're gone. You know, I'd, I'd like to see them because I've got a couple of very interesting transactions on the industrial side. And we're looking for capital for them. Now that's changing. More and more people are coming back here because they realize the supply chain has weaknesses if it's spread out all over the world. And hopefully more and more capital will be devoted to industrial type companies. Yeah, that's very interesting. I was just talking to a friend the other day about where people are going after college. Like most people are, instead of going to like the medical profession or, or things that we genuinely need education and such, everyone's going towards finance or, you know, anything that's an SAAS at tech. So what's really interesting now is just looking at where VCs are pouring their money. You know, I've been following the Web3 crypto blockchain, that whole wave for the last few months. And I think the, the investments that come month over month in, in, in that area is just insane. I mean, I've never seen that kind of exponential chart. It reminds me of like probably what was going on in the early 2000 era. And I'm just wondering, like, what's going to happen there? Because I know a lot of those companies are being valued far higher than they are. I mean, they, they could have nothing. And it's just an idea, right? Like you said, with SPACs and such. And, and I also wonder if that's taking away money from traditional IPOs that would, 
be coming out, you know, in the normal market in a different space because a lot of those Web3 companies, they don't necessarily want to be a stock. They want to be a token, quote unquote, kind of situation. So just wanted to know your take on that and seeing if that's, you know, I'm a big believer in this space. I also recognize that we're very early. So valuations will definitely not be appropriate for the company for many years. And so just wanted to know your take on that in general and how it relates back to the general markets. Well, we remember in back in 2000, uh, prior to that, it was the promise of the internet that was selling, you know, and a lot of those interesting companies that did IPO or did get venture capital went bankrupt, you know, within the next three years. So, and, but now you're not dealing with the promise anymore. You've got more of a bent towards, as I mentioned before, momentum, reality. It's, uh, it's more serious now. Those were the sort of the go-go years. Now, not to say that valuations are reasonable today, because there's a lot of people saying they're not. But the business uh, businesses on a whole seem uh, more serious, more likely to last. You know, on on, on cryptos, I've been wondering how, how could the how could any government allow that? It's basically you're manufacturing money, right? And uh, realizing all the advantages of cryptos, I just wonder whether the government is going to step in and say, well, hang on, we're going to create a Federal Reserve uh, Mm -hmm. digital currency, and Mm -hmm. you guys are out of business. Now, what they may do is just say, we like all the infrastructure, we like all the services that this industry has created. And so we're going to co- accommodate them in some way, but I'm not sure how's that, how that's going to happen. I was wondering this as well, because I know, you know, Facebook tried to come out with a coin and that was going to be very, you know, I guess, monopolistic for the, for the time. And, I, and I've been hearing about the Federal Reserve thinking about making a digital currency, even though there's more dollars in bank account zeros than actually exist. But regardless of that point and the fact that money just is like very much so a fake thing and it also gets printed out by them. I think the difference and like there's such a big dichotomy between the the standard fiat system we have now and what's going on with crypto is just thinking of centralization versus decentralization. And I find it very, very hard to think that the government actually even has the power and the not just the power, but the ability to halt such like such a movement. And I, I just don't even think that they'll be able to either a track everyone's wallets or, you know, figure out where the money's coming. And, and if, they, if they ban Bitcoin and ETH, somebody will make another coin and, and it'll just kind of keep going. I think we're going towards this like revolution of decentralized peer-to-peer finance. There's like so many different companies that are in Web3 that will be your lender, will be like your broker. And it's like everyone, everything that's kind of institutionalized, especially like government institutionalized kind of systems are being recreated in a more of a collective sense. And there's also just in ton of platforms and, and a ton of like tools that you can use to skirt the government in crypto, right? You can, there are ways that you can send money completely dark and anonymously, and, and, and they would never be able to either find it or subpoena it because it just gets deleted from that transaction history. So I wonder how that's going to actually play, because if the government were to say that, I mean, there's other countries that are very open to it. I would not be surprised to see a big outflow of population from the US to other countries that are more open with it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Anthony, I just wonder about that because 
didn't they um, didn't they find something like five hundred million? They were able to track down the people that stole an enormous amount of yeah. money. Yeah. Right? So there was there was so, a, a yeah the Bit, the Bitfinex yeah. scanners. Yeah. The the they I think they stole something like three point five billion and they hacked it and then I think they were only able to recover a certain amount. But so it's actually interesting. So that exact the way that that happened is. So there's this thing called tornado cash. And so I can send money to somebody else, but it never gets recorded how it's sent. So I could send money to Avi in crypto and say, like, I'll send him like one Ethereum. He will receive one Ethereum from some blank random wallet that doesn't exist after. Like, it's just mm-hmm. that transaction is just mm-hmm. gone. And so what happened was they sent that exact amount of money and it was such a big transaction that they were able to track it down and see what was going on. And so like... Right. And then also like posting on, I think that her, the girl posted on Facebook or there was a bunch of things that she messed up on. But I, right. I do know that there are people who have done bad things in crypto that like the community all knows about, you know, it's like this person for it's called a rug, like took all their money, pulled the rug out from under them. And you're, you just, and no matter how many people you go to try to like figure it out, like there, there are ways to get around it. So it's scary to think about that as well. But um, to your point, it's, it's definitely, definitely possible and a lot of people make mistakes to get caught but it's hard because you know thinking about how advanced the technology is to hide those transactions and to erase them right away and to make sure that it's never found again mm-hmm. you know I, I don't i think if the government came out tomorrow and said hey it's uh, no more you you're just not going to stop it in my well, i think i think there'll always be a level of that Tony. right like where people are you know a, a step ahead of the government but i think to, to Ralph's point, and, and I'm kind of in the space now in, in terms of what I know, they, they can track wallets. They may not know who it is, but they can find out and stop it. And, you know, and even after the fact, once something is stolen, eventually people are going to get caught and they're going to be made an example of. And, you know, as we've seen with many things, like people go in masses, right? And so you're, you think about like the vast majority, if they just said we're even taxing Bitcoin or crypto, you know, significantly. I think a lot of people would be hesitant. Who's who's got the fucking army at the end of the day? Like like Jem said, you know, if, they, if they're like, listen, you guys can't use it. You're going to jail. Yeah. Isn't this isn't this what Snowden was all about? You know how heavy the government's tracking of all of us is, and right. uh, you know, uh, I I'm sure the look, CIA created Bitcoin because you know. Well, well, let, let me tell you this, this: you know, since we're talking, you brought up CIA. And we're talking about venture capital. They have a venture capital arm. The CIA. Yeah, cool. You could call them, and you know <laughs> what? <sense. laughs> I've never heard of that in my life. Yeah, yes. they yes. they're like a, they, yes. they probably are like an incubator essentially for a lot of the security. Look, I, I'll bet you, given the, how many billions of dollars we spend on defense, that they're working on something to track these transactions in some way. They can't let the bad guys get ahead of the curve and, and defeat the government. So uh, if they don't have it now, they're going to find a way to have it uh, because ultimately everything goes on the internet and they, you know, look, watch that movie on Netflix, Snowden. That, that's what it's all about. It's a great flick. I've seen that. Yeah. I liked it a lot. Yeah. And you, you know, the other thing I was thinking about is when the fed wants a tight monetary policy or uh, a relaxed monetary policy. It does it digitally. That's what it does. It doesn't go out in the street, you know, from the streetcar vendor, buy 50 million tons of apples. 
and you hand them cash. It's all digitized. So they know all about digital uh, currencies. Sure, the market's teaching them other uses besides monetary policy, but they're going to catch up fast. You know, they have un- no. unlimited, they have unlimited budgets. You know, right. <laughs> basically, and, right. and unlimited access. Yeah. Is the, is yeah. So interesting. So I just want to uh, switch gears because I know Chatsworth does a lot of advising, especially in the technology sector. How do you start to advise whether they should look to get acquired or if they should go the IPO route? Like, what what types of things are people thinking about that you advise clients on ultimately? Well, first of all, it has to be a meaningful size. The, the danger is uh, if you go to an IPO too soon, um, you could become what's called in, in the business an orphan stock. Nobody, no research house follows you. Maybe you buy your own research coverage, which is not heavily relied upon by the street. And the next da- downturn, maybe your stock is trading at $4. Next downturn, you could be at $0.50. Cents. That, that's the thing. Not, not because you deserve to be at mm-hmm. $0.50, cents, but because there's no great following. So number one, it's uh, size of, let's call it the important metrics, revenues, profits, EBITDA. Number two is going to be the sector you're in. You certainly can't IPO with horse whips. You know, mm-hmm. that, that, that d- doesn't work anymore. It's got to be something <laughs> relevant to the market to get the market excited. Because ultimately, what it comes down to is a sales guy talking to a portfolio manager about a stock. And does he, how much does he want? Right. And the, the big transactions, the, the Blackstones, the AT&T, you know, the, those are relatively easy to IPO. But there's some tra- transactions that are very difficult. And the underwriter has to keep a hold of the stock and may lose money holding on to those stocks. So size, industry, if you have the, the, the best technology since sliced bread, then of course, there's going to be demand for that, even if you're small. But if you're small, how do you prove mm-hmm. that uh, there's a big market? You know, that, that's the thing. And th- those are the factors we look at uh, for an IPO, advising clients on whether to stay private mm-hmm. or IPO. In fact, we have, we have a, a client that wants to do an IPO, but they want to do it with one of the big houses. And our judgment is that they're not ready for a big house to take them public. Now, a, a smaller firm could take them public, but then that's the danger is you're out there. Nobody knows about you. You're struggling to get attention. And the way you work your way out of that is, of course, to grow. Mm-hmm. But if you're not growing like a, a serious internet company, you're, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and I'll tell you another thing. It's where do you go to get additional capital to fuel your growth? Venture capitalists don't like investing in a public company. They don't like the disclosure. They don't like the cost. So now you've cut off a, a big segment of the uh, industry 
that could have funded you if you were private. That's gone. So it's, it's, and I could tell you the enthusiasm to go public among every company that walks through our doors is infinite. Everybody right. wants to go public. You know, the dream. Uh, any founder that has, you know, a half million shares dreams of his stock being 20 or 30 or 50, you know, right. and it, it just doesn't work that way. And I think you brought up a good point too, in terms of like, how, how do these companies get out there? And, and we've saw, I don't know if, how closely you're watching like the GME, AMC, the Reddit crowd, you know, and, and, and how much is that? influenced in, in maybe not necessarily your world today, but like, I guess the companies that you're working with, I've heard rumors that hedge funds, they have people staked out in, in those Reddit communities. So they don't even expose them, but like how much of that goes on now? My understanding of the, the Reddit situation is that they've been going after pretty uh, old companies, old in the sense that they've been out and public for a while, not right, right. so much, uh, new companies, but there's no reason why they couldn't do new companies. Uh, I suspect they have, but nobody's thinking about that. The, the, the funding we go after for companies, if we're doing funding versus mergers and acquisitions, it, it doesn't, these companies are so far from being IPO, typically, it doesn't, that, that wouldn't influence us or them at all. Mm or the institutions investing in it. You know, I mean, we're, for, for companies that need funding, we're dealing in 20, 50, $100 million transactions. Mm -hmm. These companies need to grow to indicate to the marketplace that they're ready to be IPO'd. And so that, that does, doesn't play any role whatsoever. Our listener base, you know, is relatively younger for the most part. And so mostly in, in Tony himself and, and mostly for even myself, who's, who's 10 years older than Tony, we've really only seen this up market, right? And so I think the psychology and, and for a lot of these new traders, and we touch on this a lot, is like, we only know that stocks go up, you know, for the most part. We've seen like little blips here, of course, and uh, but we haven't seen anything extraordinarily, or if things happen, they happen so fast and a month or two later, it, it's gone the other direction. Here's our last question to kind of wrap things up. You know, any general advice you'd have for, you know, folks, you've been in the space for, you know, nearly, I think 30 years or so. So would love to hear any sage advice you could give to, to our audience in terms of investing and managing their own portfolio. Mm -hmm. Sure. Sure. Well, I, I think there's a lot of uh, research on the fact that the typical manager doesn't beat the market. That's well known. I think it was Peter Lynch. He said something brilliant. I, I believe it's on uh, YouTube. You could find it if you look up Peter Lynch. said something like uh, earnings grow at about 8% a year. And after about eight years, I think it, he said it would, they double. So just staying in the market throughout the good and the bad times in an index fund seems to be a good strategy. And there you're getting all the economic growth of the country. You're participating in every sector. And, and the thing about an index fund, look, I was running the Owens, Illinois pension fund when index funds came out. 
then <laughs> there was a lot of controversy. Why, why are we settling for the average? You know, but managers, even at the institutional level, they can perform poorly and, and run up transaction costs and charge a lot of fees. You know, that, that's what the research says. Okay. Mm -hmm. So a, an index on a low cost index fund seems a good way to go for a young person to just put money in, in good and bad times, put the same amount of money, maybe when things are really, you know, what they say, when there's blood in the streets, you should mm -hmm. invest more, you know? Yeah. That's the advice I, I would give people is to stay away from trading. And I know you've got a lot of traders and mm -hmm. I do a bit of trading and uh, I'm not sure it's all positive, <laughs> you know? Because uh, look, I, I I'll tell you a story. I I was on a train up to Connecticut from New York, and I saw a friend of mine. This was about twenty years ago, and he looked haggard. I said, "What what's wrong?" He says, "You, you got to buy me a drink. I'm really upset." And what had happened is some guy who was pressing portfolio managers to buy various stocks that he covered got up from his desk one day walked over to the window and jumped out. Uh, and <laughs> what I'm saying is you don't need that stress if you uh, are diversified. And, and the great thing about an index fund, people say, well, what, you know, if you're in a sector that's going down, that's not good. Yeah, but they can only go down to zero. Right. Meanwhile, you're in a sector, you, you could be in another sector that's going up and they can go up, you know, substantially, you know. So... My advice is be as diversified as you possibly can. If you can participate in private equity, uh, there's some platforms out there now. One of the good platforms is uh, Yield Street. Take a look at Yield Street. They offer some very high quality investments. I have no interest in Yield Street, but there are many, many platforms now that give you alternative investments as well. And this is what the institutions do. Most institutions, by far and away, most of their money are in index funds. And then they have maybe a few money managers that they trust over a long period of time, and they have capital with them. But the, the rest of their assets, uh, they may be in private equity, they may be in venture capital, uh, international, spread that money around, because you never know when one sector is going to get hit badly. Mm -hmm. I think that, I love that, that. Is, yeah, I, I was just going to say, yeah, I, I absolutely love that. And, and yeah, I, I'm guilty of it. I think, you know, there, there's a psychology that happens with a lot of, in my generation, right? Because of the cell phone, because of these apps, you know, because of this instant gratification, people are seeking that alpha and, and you know, it's, it's like uh, Eminem now said, like six hits don't even get me high no more. Right. It's like, these, these people want this like, ten, well, I'm just thinking of it like this is in the sense of like, you know, I remember when I was doing options trading, you get three, 400%. And I'm like, I don't want 30%. Like, right. I'm, not, I'm not doing that. That's the thing about index fund investing. It is absolutely boring. You know, uh, I, I can tell you, I have felt this before. I have very little patience. Mm. <laughs> and so I invest in something and, uh, you know, what's happening? Nothing's happening. Uh, so I'll sell it. And then three years later, I look at it and it's double, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So you got to be patient. 
And, you know, an index fund is the way to go, I think, for young people. And let me tell you one other thing. Look at all the time the three of us spend on reading financial documents and learning about the market, wondering what the Fed's going to do, right? When you invest in an index fund, that's all out the window. All you got to do is wait. You don't Mm -hmm. have to keep up with the market. You're in the market and you're participating in the growth of the country. You know, you could you could spend your time elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Nah, I can see I it love now. That. Anthony is going to become a priest. <laughs> no, I, I <laughs> yeah, tell you, like, step away from the yeah. computer sometimes. Go, go I love explore. That. You know, it's hard. I know, and I totally get that. And that's something that I'm realizing in my. I hate to say this in front of both of you, but like in my older age, as I'm getting older, I'm starting to realize that exactly is so true. I mean, like the amount of time that I spend trying to figure out what the Fed's going to do or whatever, all this stuff is like literally the majority of my days. And so, yeah, I started doing more things on the weekend. Like I will shut my phone off and just not do anything, trying to just smell the roses a little bit. And I love what you said too, about that diversification into different assets. Like I invest so many random things all the time that I just like, like I was talking about earlier with you, it's just, if I think price will go up, I will put money there. And so like, whatever the asset class is, you know, I like, People, I always say this on my podcast, but I think it's sick because I put a bunch of money in Pokemon cards like a year and a half ago. And weirdly, that has been like the best investment I made in the last year and a half. And so, you know, it's stuff that like, sure, it's a little nostalgia, but like, you know, people buy stocks because they like the tickers sometimes like Avi knows. So you never know. And, and, I, and I love that perspective. Well, I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, uh, one of my friends, he went to a major brokerage house for financial planning. And they, they put him in about uh, eight mutual funds. And I remember a study going back years that after you invest in 16 stocks, you're basically an index fund, right? So if you equal weighted in 16 stocks, you're basically the market, right? Yeah. Uh, now, they can't be all in one industry. They're talking about different stocks. So I said to him, you basically have an index fund, a very expensive one higher trading and higher fees, right? Because if you're in eight mutual funds in the US, you, you can't be anything but an index fund. So that's not the way to go. Go for a cheap index fund and then maybe find a manager that you really like and put a little money in there, but diversify. You got to diversify. I love that. It was a pleasure having you on and getting to know you over the past week. Thank you so much for joining. And I think that sage advice you gave here at the end is so true. And uh, we're guilty of it. You know, we're always talking about individual stocks, you know, on our podcast. But, you know, you've we've seen these, especially with SPACs, there was a whole SPAC attack, as we called it. And we've seen those fall. I've learned the hard way. And I think a lot of my friends have going too heavy in, in a certain stock that you fall in love with. And it's things that we tell people not to do. And I'm guilty of it myself. It's a psychology and, and you have to have patience and the, you, know, you put that in the indices and, and you're pretty good. If you zoom out like 10 years, there's never been like a huge well, span well, of 10 at, years. Look at this. I know you got to run, but I remember in the seventies when the Dow, I think in 74, got down to like uh, 600, mm-hmm. Holy shit. 600 and look where it is now, yep. <laughs> right? <laughs> so That's there, crazy. it's right there, right in front of you. you yeah, know. exactly. You, Sometimes you, you, don't, you don't have to struggle <laughs> to be a brilliant, uh, just pu- put your money away, diversify. Thank you, guys. You've been awesome. great. Thank you.
This was awesome. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ralph, for joining us today. Me too. I'm making big moves. That's a big move. Big money, big moves. That's a big move. I'm making big moves. That's a big move. Big money, big moves. That's a big move. Yeah. Make a play, don't talk about it. Master P, I'm about it, about it. This one here for all that try to count me out and they still counting. Honestly, I never doubt it. Say the top is never crowded. Well, I'm trying to climb the mountain till I need a few accountants. Stock is rising, perfect timing. I'm in Brickle with the tribe. Shawty sliding, she wants sushi, she wants eel sauce for the rice. I just peel off with the light, took her heels off for the ride. Don't say real talk, this a lie. I'm a real one, I provide, yeah. Drip on a hundred.